What a beautiful song that is. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing that with us today. Get all my gear together here as I get ready to share with you from Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter number 33. That's in the Old Testament, folks. As you uh, open up your Bibles to figure out now where is Second Chronicles 33. If you're in the New Testament and you could find Second Corinthians 33, you've done a miracle. Because there are not 33 chapters in that book. And there's not, there's not 33 chapters in 1 Corinthians either. So uh, you have to go to the Old Testament to find a 33-chapter book for 2 Chronicles. That's, that's a little bit before the book of Psalms, by the way. In case you're saying, I don't know how to find that one. It's, it's a big one, okay? And that's just a little bit before the book of Psalms. We don't dust off this book very often, do we? Second Chronicles, uh, we say, well, what's, what's, uh, what is that? We're going to enjoy, I think enjoy, I think that's the word I'm going to use. Uh, we're going to enjoy a study on King Manasseh. I call it the fall and rise of King Manasseh. Now, for you who love literature, you're going to say, he put them in the wrong order. Because typically, how do we put those words? The rise and fall. We're going in a reverse order here today. The fall and rise of King Manasseh. Um, you may find it to be an interesting study. You might find it to be an alarming study. It is not a happy thing, to tell the truth. The things that we will look at, especially in the next couple of weeks, you're going to say, ooh. Um, but there is much here for us. And that's why I bring it before you here today. Um, some of my favorite literature is written by Charles Dickens. I love reading Charles Dickens' novels. And he wrote one called A Tale of Two Cities. Heard that before, haven't you? Um, it is a tale, a story of the French Revolution around the year 1770 or so. Um, the conditions in England and in France. And the very first paragraph of his book says this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity or disbelief. It was a season of light and it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct to the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of his noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. You know what that means? Oh, let's mark it down as an event in history. Let's make comparisons and contrasts, but let's not take it to heart. Let's not take it to heart. It doesn't go beyond mere investigation just to say, oh, that's like us. What you're going to see in our study here today is something that might go about like, well, that's like us. 
And unfortunately, for many, they would say, well, let's just go to the far extreme of investigating, but let's not take it to heart. I'm going to plow a little deeper, as you could probably imagine today, because there are times when things are very uncomfortable to open up and say, hey, that could be us. Things that reveal that maybe we're going down the wrong path in our, our country. I don't know if you think that, but I certainly do. Things that perhaps need change. And I'm not here to say, let's figure out how to change society and stuff. I'm concerned about our hearts and our stand before God. And um, things that might be revealed to us might be uncomfortable. But we are not to quit. We, we are not even regardless of the challenges before us. There are positive examples in Scripture of events in the Old Testament, uh, things that have happened that were meant for a positive response later. In the book of Romans, chapter number 15, the context speaks of a unity that's expected of the church. How we're supposed to get along, not only among each other, but in this world around us. And one of the main points that Paul makes in that chapter is that, after all, Christ is the one who carried our reproach. We have something in common, don't we? Jesus Christ dealt with your sin. He dealt with my sin. And it should make for unity, right? It should, in that regard. And this is what he said in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's us. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's a positive reflection upon something in the past, understood and applied. Okay? Understood and applied. Now, unfortunately, most of the time when it talks about examples of the past, it takes us into the negative departments. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul's dealing with a very immature church, the Corinthians, and he's dealing with the, the habits and the attitudes of these people, and he says, you know, you guys, this is my paraphrase, you guys sure do act like those people in the Old Testament who were so hard-hearted, so immature. They kept repeating the same sins over and over again. He, and so he constantly made reference to the sins of Israel in the wilderness. Could you imagine living with sinful people for 40 years? I say that kind of funny, don't I? That's what Moses had to do with the whole generation of Israelites. 40 years wandering in the wilderness, 2 million people, most of them living contrary to what God told them to do. And without any good reason. Didn't they pick up manna off the ground in the morning? Reminder of God was with them. Didn't they see a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day? Didn't they drink water from rocks that were split? Didn't they cross through the Red Sea on dry ground? Had they seen the presence of God among them? Yes. And it's hard to believe that they lived so contrary to that over and over and over again. And this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8. Let us not act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. He says, 
Let us not try the Lord, in verse number 9. As some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. He says, nor let us grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, he said in verse 11, happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's a pretty heavy lesson. Don't act immoral. Don't test the Lord. Don't grumble. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Hebrew writer is, is writing about the time when Israel hardened its heart, would not listen to God. They had the opportunity to go into the promised land, but the spies came with a bad report, they thought. At least 10 out of 12 did. And they believed the 10, and they said, well, we're not going to go then. That's a terrible place. We don't want to go there. And they hardened their heart, and a whole generation was lost because of that. That's what instigated the 40 years in the wilderness as a result of that. And the writer says, in a, in a parallel form, he says, you know, Christ is the one who died for us, and Christ is the one who gives you rest if you would trust him. And unfortunately, the writer of Hebrews is saying, but some of you out there have hard hearts, and you won't even enter into the rest that the Lord gave to you. It's made for you, but you're like them. You refuse to go. And he says in Hebrews 4.11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. That's some of the passages I could take you to. I could add to it the book of Jude. Oh my, what a pronounced judgment that is. I'll just read it to you. This is God's view of immorality and the practices in our culture today. Jude 1, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way as those who indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God called it for what it was. God punished it. And he hasn't changed his mind. Jude says, let's not be like that. That example is before us, and it's a comparison we need to take to heart. Our land is in trouble. Our culture's in trouble. They're so wrapped up in the sin of immorality in all its degrees. They're so wrapped up in it today. God's not asleep. He knows. Jude warns us of that, too. Now, my point this morning is the value of examples. We can analyze an event in history, we can mark at an era, we can make comparisons, we can make contrast, but if it doesn't go beyond mere investigation, we haven't finished the job. It has to go into the heart, make us consider what we have seen, where paths were taken that were wrong, where things were necessary to change, and we must take it to heart and follow through. That's why scripture was written for us in many ways as an example. As an example of what to do, what not to do. Now, there is one who has set the perfect example for us and we're to walk in his steps. Peter would speak of Jesus Christ that way, right? We are to follow in his steps. Unfortunately, the Old Testament has so many examples of people how not to do it. Guess who we're going to study today? One who shows us how not to do it. That's King Manasseh. 
When we're told to live godly in an ungodly world, he does not help us. Not in his example. There's traps we're told to avoid. He does not help us because he falls face first into all those traps. This study is going to be an interesting one because the title is intentional. The Fall and Rise of King Manasseh. I don't want to leave it to make you think that the end of the story is going to be terrible. This is a man that the Lord did some work in his heart. And you're going to find that refreshing. But unfortunately, we have to go down the first road to get to the end. Right? Here's the name Manasseh before you. Manasseh, King Manasseh. His name means cause to forget. Cause to forget. What an interesting name. If you were looking through the name list in the, the baby books of what you could ch name your child, how many of you would say, hey, that sounds attractive? Cause to forget. There was a little poem given to me by my mother. It was put on a little plaque. And um, this little plaque was given to all of us sons in the family. There's four of us. And this is what it read. You got it from your father. It was the best he had to give. And right gladly he bestowed it. It's yours the while you live. You may lose the watch he gave you and another you may claim. But remember when you're tempted to be careful of that name. It was fair the day you got it, and a worthy name to bear. When he took it from his father, there was no dishonor there. Through the years he proudly wore it. To his father he was true, and that name was clean and spotless when he passed it on to you. Oh, there is much more he has given that he values not at all. He has watched you break your playthings in the days when you were small. You have lost the knife he gave you, and you scattered many a game. But you never hurt your father. You never hurt your father if you're careful with his name. It is yours to wear forever. Yours to wear the while you live. Yours, perhaps, some distant morn, another boy to give. And your smile, as your father did, with a smile that all can share, if a clean name and a good name you are giving him to wear. I remember that uh, on that little plaque my mom gave to me. Reminded me of a passage in Proverbs chapter number 22. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. A good name. Here's the name set before you, Manasseh. Manasseh causes to forget is the title that goes with that. Another word is neglect. Neglect. Neglect is not exactly the same thing as forgetfulness. Neglect is failure to do something. We have crimes in our land that we call neglect. Failure to do something. When somebody is responsible, when somebody has a situation before them and they fail to do their duty, we call that neglect. They are accountable for what they are called to do. 
Manasseh had a problem. And it was very deep. He causes neglect. He pushes the failure to such a point that those whom he influenced could not rebound from it. It's an amazing display of what one life can do to a multitude of lives. That's Manasseh, the man before you. We're going to learn two principles about his life as we go through it in our study. One, sin carries a terrible price tag. It always does, folks. Carries a terrible price tag. And secondly, mercy is an incredible thing. There is none beyond hope. There is none beyond hope. These are going to be some interesting things we're learned. Now, Manasseh's life is recorded in two places in Scripture. We're going to make reference every now and then to 2 Kings chapter 21. And that's where it's recorded by Jeremiah the prophet. 2 Kings 21, 1 through 18. This passage, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 33, is recorded by Ezra the prophet. Quite a number of years apart. Jeremiah wrote first, he wrote the history. We're going into Chronicles, and you say, well, what's the point of repeating it? This is a spiritual commentary on history. That's what Chronicles is. A spiritual commentary on historic events. What, not only what the king did, but why he did what he did is recorded in these books. His change of heart is not recorded in 1 Kings or 2 Kings. It's recorded in Chronicles. Because the writer of Chronicles wanted you to see the why in the story and what God could do about it. And so that's why I chose Chronicles for you. To do a character study is not always easy. But they say if we do character studies right, it was as if we were plucked out of our world and dropped into another one. There we can uh, see different time, a different culture, but it looks very familiar to us. And there's a challenge in doing such a thing because sometimes we sensationalize the person. And that's a hard thing to avoid, by the way, trying to study somebody's life, trying to not read too much into a passage. I always say the best thing to do is let the Bible speak for itself. Keep it in its context. Present it as it is. Black and white the way it is. God desires for us to know this man. He put it in his book so that we could read it, so that we could learn from the example that we have before us. Now, if we were to take the time this morning just to read all the things you could about Manasseh, it might take forever. But I'm going to start just in verse chapter 33, and I'm going to read up to verse number 9. All right? Just that far. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations who the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heavens in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. 
He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image in the, of the idol, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your, fa your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to the law, the statutes, the ordinance given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. I was pretty much stopped cold with verse number 9. Manasseh misled, that's a New American Standard Version word, to cause to go astray is its definition. To deceive. He deceived Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He seduced them. That's a Pretty frightful word, isn't it? He seduced them to sin. If we turn back to our 2 Kings parallel passage, verse number 9, 2 Kings 21, 9, where the New American Standard translates the words misled and seduced, the kings said, the, Jeremiah said, Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. In his name, he caused to forget. In his name, he caused to go astray. That was his practice. Here was a king responsible for people, an entire nation that belonged to the, to the Lord. He was to raise them up in a fear of the Lord, to lead them down the path of righteousness. That was his job as a king. He came through a godly heritage, his great-great-great-great-grandfather, however greats you've got to put in front of that, was King David himself. Solomon was in that family. And then a whole bunch of kings came through that family. Some of them were very good kings. Not far up the ladder was a man named Jehoshaphat, who I thought very highly of. King Jehoshaphat. And King Asa was a great king. And his father, Manasseh's father, was none other than Hezekiah. One of the greatest kings to have ever sat on that throne. That was Manasseh's father. And you look at this and you say, okay, he had a job to do. He was to lead the people. And here's the words. He misled. He deceived. He seduced them to do more evil than has ever been seen in that nation before. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Who's 12 years old in here today? Any 12-year-olds? You're a 12-year-old? Look at that boy. 12 years old, Manasseh became king. The first thing that's recorded about him is how evil he was. Is that remarkable to you? A 12-year-old starting off like that? He would reign for 55 years, the longest of any kings 
in the whole list of kings in the Old Testament. 55 years to reign. How did this happen? How did this happen? People say that every now and then when they see somebody who's, who's grown up and they're starting to live a very, very ungodly life, and they say, how did that happen? Sometimes they try to find what's the trigger? What caused them to go this way? What, what made them like that? Was it because he was a 12-year-old? I hope not, because we've got a lot of 12-year-olds in our land. I hope it's not just because of his age. Are all 12-year-olds terrible? Probably not. Close. No. No, that's not true either. You want to know something else? His grandson is recorded in Scripture too. Manasseh was 12, all right? He lived his life. He had children. His children had children. He had a grandson. His grandson is recorded in chapter 34. Just turn the page, verse number 1. This is Manasseh's grandson. Josiah was what? Eight years old. And guess what it says of him? When he became king, verse number two, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So it wasn't age, was it? Because here's somebody much younger than him doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And here is Manasseh, 12 years old, and he's living evil. Was it his parents? I've already told you Hezekiah was his father. Do you know what Manasseh's mother's name was? Oh, it's in there in Scripture. It's in 2 Kings 21. Her name was Hepzibah. Now that's the name that would make anybody go evil, right? Hepzibah. What's that mean? Now, Hepzibah is a really a nice name. It is a name that speaks of the Lord's favor. That's what it meant. It meant somebody who, who the Lord favors. Matter of fact, it means my delight is in her. Now, I don't know if that represents who she was. We don't know anything about her. We don't know any of her character. Um, some people suggest that she and Hezekiah got married later in life. Uh, probably after he had been sick. If you know the story of Hezekiah, he was told at one point, the prophet came in and says, get your house in order, you're going to die. And he turned his head to the wall and he cried out to the Lord and he begged for more time and the Lord gave him 15 more years. And so some people say, well, he then thought, well, you know, I don't have any children. This is the way they write it. He didn't have any children, so he went and he married Hephzibah. And Hephzibah and him had a child in those last 15 years, and his name was Manasseh. Some people have even asked if, if Hezekiah hadn't asked for those 15 years, we wouldn't have had a Manasseh. Now, we could do that with history all we want, right? But the reality is on the page that his mother's name was Hephzibah, and I don't know if that's good or if that's bad, but that doesn't help us a whole lot in our story. We can't blame the mother, I don't think. And when we talk about the father, Hezekiah, his life's recorded all over Scripture. Hezekiah, one of the godliest kings to have ever sat on that throne. One of the reformer kings, we call him. Because he, he had difficulties and he went about changing things in the land. Where there was idols, he took them down. Where there were little temples to this god and that god, he destroyed them. He was cleaning the place out. 
He was bringing the people back to worship. He had a Passover service once that the world had never seen before, a Passover like that. And all that Hezekiah did was just an encouragement to those who love godliness. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but his testimony is recorded all the way through Scripture that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right as was in the eyes of the Lord. He was a reformer king. He restored worship. He worked in the temple. He removed idolatry and all kinds of other significant things. But we also know from Scripture that being a godly man doesn't always translate into godly children. That's a hard thing to understand at times. You might have even been there, trying to figure out, how did this happen? Godly, godly mom, godly dad, child that's not godly at all. How did that happen? I'm not going to blame Hezekiah, and I'm not going to blame his wife for the fact that Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. Was it his spiritual advisor, maybe? You know how kings depend on people to help them along. Well, we believe that the man who was most influential in his life, or had the potential to be, was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah had been the help for many kings before. Isaiah said that he did his ministry during the reigns of Uzziah, and during the reigns of Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's four generations. And he was the one who was talking to Hezekiah when he was begging to live a little bit longer. They believe it might have been Isaiah still alive. That would have been five generations he ministered to, if that's the case. Maybe he wasn't alive at this point. We don't really know, but this is what we do know. He would have ministered for 62 years up until the time that Manasseh was born. 62 years. That's a long time to serve. And set before these kings a faithful record. Micah the prophet, we don't know if he's already off the scene. We don't know if Jeremiah is on the scene yet. But here's what Jewish tradition records. Josephus wrote this. It stated that Manasseh killed the righteous among all the Hebrews. Spared not even the prophets, but every day slew some of them. That's Josephus' words. And according to Hebrews 11.37, they believe it was Isaiah who was put into a log and sawn in half by Manasseh. Does that strike you? This man was evil. If this is the case, where it certainly was somebody righteous that was killed... Many people he slew. It says in 2 Kings 21 that he shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Innocent, righteous blood. People who could advise him spiritually, help him understand the right ways to go. Here's the path of godliness. Manasseh walked down this path, and that was a mark for their execution. You can't blame the spiritual advisors then, can you? Was it his environment? That's always the good one today, isn't it? Of course, he ate too many Twinkies. Right? But what was it that prompts this guy in his environment to do evil? Was it an environment? He, he received a throne 
from his father concerning Jerusalem and the temple that it had not had that luxury to be passed from father to son for a long, long time. Most of the time, the good kings came on to clean up the mess of their fathers. There was always something that needed, that's what Hezekiah had to do. But when Hezekiah handed it to his son, the temple was restored. The people were walking as they should, it appeared. They were following the, the practice of the, of the law of the Lord. The land was in prosperity. There was much good in this kingdom. Inherit such a kingdom, folks. You could walk into a life with some degree of luxury. You don't have a lot to do to fix things. Because Hezekiah, your father, had worked so hard. He reformed all these practices. The priests were operating like they should. The Levites, good. The godly influences all around them. How could anything go wrong now? How could anything go wrong? But you see that verse in front of you, verse number 9. Thus Manasseh misled, deceived, seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. That comment comes with a pretty clean background around it. His day, his father, the spiritual uh, temperature of the land, the people around him. In a sense, it makes Manasseh even uglier. The fact that he not only as an individual sinned greatly, but to have influenced so many to do it as well. That's a fall of King Manasseh. I can't remember how many examples I've seen of godly men with wicked sons. You've seen them too, haven't you? I'm going to let Manasseh stand before you today just as he started. A man who chose not to follow the Lord. A man who's influenced a nation to sin before the Lord. At such a rate that even the Canaanites of Joshua's day would have blushed to have seen it. This man I'm going to have stand before us here, and it's not a pretty way to start a character study, is it? But I'm going to let him stand here, certainly as an example of how not to do it. But I want to bring before you one simple thought, if I can, this morning, because you are a character study, too. This man is recorded in Scripture for all of us to read. Would your story like to be in there too? For all of us to see, to read? Most of us would say, no, 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 I don't, I, I'm glad I'm not in there. But the reality is this. Though your life may not be in print, it is being read. You are a character study for somebody else. And you influence them because your life is not about you. The things you do, good or bad, whether you're ranked up in the godly department or whether you're ranked like a Manasseh, 
When you set that life before you, you say, it's my life to do what I want to do with, and I'm going to do it for myself. And that's not true in our world. Because people watch. Children watch. Grandchildren watch. Neighbors watch. Coworkers watch. Church people watch. <laughs> Believe it or not, you're an influence on somebody or many somebodies. People observe you. Do you mislead? Do you deceive? Do you seduce them to walk away from the Lord? Those are hard questions, aren't they? They're hard questions to ask. Why does scripture say these are an example to us? So that we can just read their story and say, hmm, that's a bad guy. Or is it so that we can read from their story and take it to heart? This is where it starts to get rather personal. Because all of our lives are lived out in living color before those who see us. And those who know us. And we influence them. We influence them, not only by the things we do, but even by the things we don't do. I remember a day many years ago, I was a teenager. A man brought his family to church, the church we were attending, sat right over there about where Dale is right now. He and his wife, and, and they had two sons there in the pew with them that were about my age. And I thought, hey, this is really cool. I could get new friends. Well, the father would stand like this during congregational singing. He had that sour look on his face. You can't move those lips. All right? He's not going to sing a song to save his life. And he stood just like that, like a statue, almost defiant. Every time he said, let's stand up and sing, he'd stand up and cross his arms and give you that look like, don't you dare ask me. Guess what his sons look like? They look like three identical statues over there. Arms crossed, face on. We're not going to sing. Why? That's why dad does it. That's why dad does it. And I remember seeing that. For the first time I noticed it, I said, wow, look at that. They all look alike. They all look alike. Now, it's easy, perhaps, for a pastor to lecture on life about what people see, how they learn from you. I'm going to let you lecture yourself today because now I want you to turn it inside. How is it that people follow you right now? Who is it out there that you're influencing? that watches your life. Do you lead them to love the Lord more? Do you encourage them to praise Him? Do you leave joy in the room when you exit it and everyone said, boy, I want to be like that? Of course, there's another direction you could take it all, can't you? You cause them to make, to make the assumption that following the Lord is a hard thing to do and a burdensome thing for you and it makes you so upset and so angry that you have to go to church. 
do you say? Read your Bible. When you talk to them? I'm just asking you questions. You've got to look at the heart this morning. Because there are ears listening to your words. There are eyes watching your actions. And they're going to learn from us. Because we're all character studies. We're all character studies. Set as examples for others to follow. I would rather leave a positive one, wouldn't you? I'd rather that people look at my life and through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, they have hope. I would rather leave that behind than the one that I read to you last in Hebrews 4.11, that through following the example, they follow the example that led to disobedience. I said that before you today because next week is going to be about the ugliest sermon you've ever heard. I have to confess. Now you're curious, aren't you? It's going to be about the ugliest thing you've ever heard. But it's the next passage that we're following through with the life of Manasseh. Let's take it to heart, folks. Let's take it to heart. Heavenly Father, we stand before you, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, given an enormous responsibility in this world to shine as lights. That means we're reflecting you and your glory. To be examples of what it means to follow in the steps of Christ. We're given such incredible responsibility. And no doubt there's accountability with this too. Not only in the days to come, perhaps we might say in the days that we stand before your throne, but there is an accountability also in the generations that follow us, in our children and in our grandchildren. We're accountable to some degree of how they choose, where they follow. May we not be like a Manasseh who misled, who deceived, who seduced, and walked an entire generation into the deeds of darkness. Lord, as we examine ourselves before you today, we take it to heart. The kind of person we are, the kind of person people see, may we reflect Jesus in these lives. May we be an encouragement for perseverance, for hope. Challenge us with this passage, Lord. It's not our usual passage to study. It's not an easy passage to study. But I pray that it hits its mark and it gives us time to examine how we follow you too. And we thank you, Lord, for that. For you give us all kinds of instruction. And we thank you for your loving way of doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.